Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, as the affordability crisis continues, is it time to put a pause on the carbon tax? Plus, we continue our series, The Next Million, look at the city's food security challenges. And do we need to modernize rules surrounding the agricultural land reserve with another million people moving to Metro Vancouver by 2050? Ocean Spray Chairman Peter Dillon joins us. And it shouldn't be happening, but it is over and over again. What will it take to eliminate trucks hitting overpasses? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. The Vancouver Police Department executed multiple search warrants as part of an ongoing investigation to the operation of the Drug User Liberation Front, a Vancouver-based organization that has publicly admitted to trafficking controlled substances. And question period today, opposition leader Kevin Falcon said Dolph's behavior amounts to taxpayer-funded drug trafficking. Take a listen. Buying drugs from the dark web, supporting organized crime is not life-saving work. It actually puts police and the public at risk. Does the Solicitor General really believe that British Columbians are blind to the reality of what you are doing and who you are supporting and the the, fact that we have to have the police raid and arrest people before you finally realize it's the wrong thing to do as part of this reckless decriminalization program of your government? The contract that the group that he is talking about was awarded by Vancouver Coastal Health for the testing of drugs for overdose prevention on helping people and preventing them from dying. In no way, shape or form were any of those funds intended for the purchase of illegal drugs. As well, police are conducting and have conducted an investigation which has led to the arrest uh, and warrants uh, for individuals. Those who break the law are held accountable. That was Solicitor General Mike Farnworth responding to opposition leader Kevin Falcon's question. Well, another MLA who was asking questions during question period today regarding this issue is Eleanor Sturko. She's the BC United MLA for South Surrey and Shadow Minister for Mental Health Addiction, Recovery and Education. Eleanor, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jazz. So what does this tell you? Do you believe that the work that um, Vancouver Coastal Health has done with Dolph, all of it, never mind this particular instance of, of, of some really very serious allegations, do you think they should just stop working with Dolph, period? Absolutely. I think that there are plenty of organizations out there in British Columbia's landscape right now, many of whom I know have been fighting for funding, um, looking for grant money to carry on with life-saving programs that they're operating who aren't involved in criminal activity. But, you know, one of the things that actually disgusted me, Jazz, was hearing our Solicitor General stand up and talk about how, you know, pretty much he's justifying uh, this illegal activity and the fact that the government is, has been funding for a couple of years at least this illegal activity. Um, it somehow justifies breaking the law. And you know what? I know that we're losing, on average, six people a day. But they are absolutely not taking account of the individuals who are harmed in British Columbia by the illicit drug trade in terms of drug trafficking. Look at my community, Jazz of Surrey. Mm -hmm. Think of how many people have been killed as a result of gang fighting, uh, drug trafficking. You know, we even had innocent people, innocent bystanders killed. 
And I just can't imagine any justification for funding people who put money and guns into the hands of those that have taken the lives of British Columbians in the, in the gang wars. Mm-hmm. Now, the organization in the past has said that uh, they've been selling tested drugs at a cost for over a year uh, and that you know, initial results have shown that it, the results have been promising and that the, it's reduced or there have been fewer overdoses um, and reduced drug use among some clients as well. Do you buy any of that? You know what? I think that we're talking about the fruit of the poison tree. Okay, so we're dealing with unethical research that crime was committed in order for them to gather this research. Mm-hmm. Although we do know, know now that they were using uh, labs at University of Victoria to carry out this. Uh, they were uh, working with the BC Centre on Substance Use. That's the government's largest uh, policy advisor on uh, drugs. And so, I mean, the fact that the government now says that they just found out is absolute BS, I'm going to say. I think this is, this is really, really outrageous that they would deny knowing. Um, but, you know, here's the thing, is that this organization, the Drug Users Liberation Front, had applied for an exemption uh, from Health Canada so that they could actually get pharmaceutical alternatives to carry out this research, okay? Mm-hmm. They got denied that. They got denied that license, okay? And so then they went ahead with full support and committed crimes, okay? And so, yes, they had a, a sample group that they said, now, look, we've saved all these lives. And But, you know what, honestly, Jazz, how many lives have been hurt we will never know how many lives were hurt as a result of pouring money into the dark web, which is a place where people get guns, they get uh, drugs. It's rampant with child pornography. We had a police officer killed like less than a month ago investigating a, a, a drug investigation. And this government is putting money into an organization that helped fund individuals involved in that uh, type of activity. Now, I've said in the past that, look, if, if you want to, if you if you want to be involved in this drug decriminalization experiment, fine, let's do that. But my argument has always been that if you aren't doing the other two things, which is enforcement and treatment centers, uh, the program is destined to fail. Now, in the context of what we're talking about today with Dolph, it just seems to me that you know if they've gone ahead with the the issue of decriminalization. But it, there seems to be very little, there'd be no plan in regards to we're going to still fund more treatment centers, there's going to be enforcement. Instead, we're having a conversation about Dolph and tax dollars, taxpayer dollars and, and buying drugs. I mean, it just seems to me that there's, there's no coherence to this program that they've announced. Well, there's twofold to your comment that you just made. The first one is that drug trafficking has never been decriminalized, even though people can possess 2.5 grams or less of certain illicit drugs, mm-hmm. um, you can't traffic them. That means you can't deliver them or ship them or mail them to University of Victoria to get tested. You cannot buy them from the dark web and then sell them, even at cost, to other drug users. This has remained illegal under the decriminalization. So that is not legal, and it never has, and God willing, it never will be. But, you know, the other part of it is, is that in this government, they are talking about decriminalization and they cite other countries where decriminalization has been successful. For example, Portugal. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you that in Portugal, it is still not legal to do drugs in public. You cannot do drugs. You will get an administrative process given to you. And that's the part that we're missing here, Jazz, is that this government is telling you half the story and doing half the work. In Portugal, they... tremendously increased access to things like treatment 
and recovery and um, options so that people could access things like safe supply, but only only as part of a treatment plan and only under the supervision of uh, an addiction specialist. And they also, in all the countries they cite this government on their website as the evidence that decriminalization can be helpful, all those other countries have involuntary care and someone who commits crime while on drugs can be sentenced to treatment. So, you know, you can't try and bake the same pie when you're not following the same recipe. And we are not going to be successful like the other countries if we don't do what they did. Eleanor, we've run out of time. Thank you for joining us today. Jazz, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Often on this program, people like Peter Shashecki or Michael Levy, we talk business, we talk finances, and the advice is, you know, make sure you get your right planner, have a conversation about what your goals are, where you want to be, but make sure you get the right type of financial advice. Uh, Jerry Mayer Judson joins us now uh, on, uh, on, I guess, people getting advice from... Not a human being. No, we're past that. It's 2023, Jess. Yeah, there's a, I mean, of course, people ask AI for everything. People ask chat GPT for everything. So, uh, for financial advice? For financial advice, it seems like. It's a resource. This is the thing now? People, oh my God. This is the thing. So, uh, I talked to Kelly Keene. She is a financial educator as well as the founder of MoneyWise Workplaces, which is a financial education platform. She, asked ChatGPT to generate a financial plan for a young Canadian family with high debt, low savings, high income, and two young children, just to see what the advice that ChatGPT would spit out. So uh, it turns out the advice was excessive, but maybe not nuanced like it needed to be. It came up with very general, broad information about, you know, setting a budget, starting investing, paying down debt. That was all good. But I think there was like 14 different points. So number one, that's going to be a little intimidating to a young couple trying to figure out where do they start. Um, when I, I added more context to the question, it did spit out some information about insurance. But, you know, I'm no longer an advisor. I'm, I'm an educator now, so I don't advise people what to do. But that should be top of the list is looking at insurance, making sure that their family is protected. And then, of course, it didn't go through any nuance such as, you know, is this young couple a high income earner? Should they maybe invest in an RSP and take that money and pay down their debt? So great for educational purposes, but fell quite a bit short on the advice side. What would you say might be pros and cons to people accessing financial education and maybe even advice from AI software that's available? I think it's absolutely brilliant in getting your understanding to a level that you feel comfortable to, let's say, seek professional advice. Maybe your mortgage is coming up for renewal and you don't really understand the difference between a term and an amortization and things of that sort that's going to be a great resource for you. Maybe you don't even know what to ask a financial planner. So what are the top 10 things I should ask a financial planner or advisor? That's really going to help you as well. It's going to give you so much confidence and knowledge. Now, that's when the human still comes in. So for example, I'm talking with my husband. We're trying to figure out a trip for his birthday in January. ChatGPT was fantastic in narrowing down you know, the top 10 resorts to go to, but I'm still going to call my travel agent because we don't take a lot of trips together. And I want to make sure that I have a human that's still interpreting 
what I've been able to refine in my search. Definitely great supporting information, great to get you up to speed on, you know, your finances and, and a basic education, but definitely doesn't give you that human element. Okay, that totally tracks. Using the AI as much as you can as a, as a tool to help you so you can come correct instead of a replacement for, for a whole human being who, who has background in that particular thing. It's just like a more specialized right. Google, maybe. <laughs> yeah, like, okay. exactly. You know, this really is a potential, maybe not yet, but in the future, a potential game changer for someone starting out because... The number one thing I've heard the last 20 years is, look, like, unless you've got a lot of money to invest, the financial industry is, is hard to crack, right? If you're not coming in with a half a million dollars or a million dollars, you've got your $10,000 to invest, which is a lot to you. And that's a lot of money. But there just isn't that advice. I, I think AI can really help with that education right now and perhaps in the future can also help with that type of person who's starting out and you know, just doesn't really understand if their money should go into an RSP or a TFSA or, or if they should start saving for their kids. Um, but then also we have to remember that there are inherent biases baked into AI as well. So that also could leave that individual a little bit vulnerable. But that definitely is a pro and con to someone who just isn't going to get the attention of, of a, you know, uh, let's say an investment manager or a financial advisor. I just have... I don't understand why anybody would go to ChatGPT for advice. For advice. But uh, information, I guess. It yeah, can aggregate basics. some data. And then if you kind of go into it aware of the of the biases that live inside the software, then maybe you can glean something from it. But I've seen you on your phone right now. Well, I was listening to the, the your interview and I just said, you know what, I'm going to ask some financial advice. And All the right. first thing ChatGPT did tell me, uh, I can provide some general financial uh, tips. I act like a person already. <laughs> uh, the I already don't like it. Yeah, but please keep in mind that it's important to consult with a financial advisor hey. for personalized advice. So okay. uh, that caveat's important. That's yes, the right one. Because certainly. You create a budget, save and invest, reduce debt, plan for retirement, uh, protect yourself in regards to you know getting health and life insurance. Okay. Uh, uh, continually educate yourself, set financial goals. So that you know that's okay. pretty yep. broad gives you sort of have money, save yeah. money advice. Don't put it into X Y Z. Yeah. Know, uh, stock or whatever it is. Yeah, but and I get, yeah, it, it's I like that in 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 using it to gather information so you can then take yourself to a financial advisor with maybe a little bit more of the ground under under your feet so you can get different, you know. Yeah, and, and I don't mean to blame ChatGPT. I think we rely too much on the Google as well. Just type yeah, in something and I automatically know. you assume the knowledge is just there rather right. than thinking critically, is this the right mm -hmm. bit of advice? Mm -hmm. And is it the right bit of advice for myself or my finances or whatever issue you're looking at? Mm -hmm. So I think we just got to actually go a bit more basic sometimes and yeah. stay away from the not, machines. Not know? phasing out people just yet. <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> At least for another six months. We should be okay. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. As we continue with our series, The Next Million, the series airs every Tuesday and Thursday at 4 p.m. This series has been looking at Metro Vancouver through the lens of another million people uh, living here. Our population is presently 2.8 million people and is expected at 3.8 million by 2050. And how we accommodate those residents and how we work, live and play in the region with a million more people is really the question. Now, early this week, we looked at uh, our shortage of industrial land in Vancouver. Next week, we'll be joined by former BC Premier Christy Clark as we look at how we should govern the region with a million more people. Remember, this is a region with 21 
municipalities, 21 fire chiefs, 21 police chiefs. Is that really the right way to go with another million people coming here uh, in 2050? Well, today we wanted to look at food production and security in the context of a region that is adding more people and yet still wants to protect protect its agricultural land. Now, there are over 17,500 farms in BC. We produce over 200 different types of commodities from eggs to chickens, uh, mushrooms, vegetables, and cranberries. Here in Metro Vancouver, there are approximately 60,000 hectares of protected ALR land. Now, our next guest uh, knows a few things about farming. He started uh, the family farm in Richmond. Uh, Peter Dillon and his family are one of the biggest cranberry producers in North America. Mr. Dillon is the CEO of the Richberry Group of Companies, an agribusiness enterprise with operations in BC and Quebec. Uh, the Richberry Group consists of cranberry companies, uh, which combined are one of the Ocean Spray Cranberry's largest shareholders and suppliers. Uh, Mr. Dillon is currently the chairman of the board of Ocean Spray Cranberries. And the youngest and first Canadian to hold that position as well. Uh, and in 2019, Mr. Dillon headed up the province's food security task force, which provided advice on how we can help grow more food and more jobs in BC's agriculture sector. Peter, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Josh, thanks for having me. So, uh, by the way, we are in the midst of the cranberry harvest. So I should probably ask you, how is the harvest going this year? Yeah, great. Thanks, Jess. Uh, uh, in BC, in particular, it's actually doing quite well. I think we're one of the very few crops this year uh, that can say that we're uh, pretty happy farmers. I know that most uh, farmers in British Columbia with different commodities have had a real struggle this year due to uh, weather. Okay. Uh, and now you have operations in Quebec. How's that? Yeah, uh, Quebec, well, we got hit with weather there. Uh, as uh, one of my uh, colleagues said to me, that we've had two weather, uh, uh, two weather events in Quebec. The first one lasted 45 days of rain, and the second one lasted 45 days of rain. So <laughs> Quebec was, an, I think it was an all-time low on our production level. For cranberry yeah, production. For cranberry production. It's amazing, isn't it? One, one side of the country doing yeah. really well, and the other side, it's a challenge. Yeah, and it was the flip the other way around. That's the one thing. I think for farmers, we, you know, the one thing we can't control is Mother Nature. And as you can see now, and we can witness around the globe, mm-hmm. is uh, all the different weather patterns that we're experiencing. So the series is called The Next Million, um, and how we feed the next million is also part of that conversation. Are we prepared to feed the next million under our present food system? Yeah, well, uh, great question. Um, I, I think there's a long way to go. Um, and uh, as we look at food security, uh, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is just the one that you've just posed is, do, do we have enough to feed the next million? I think the question is, do we even have enough to feed the current uh, um, population that we have? Knowing that food production in its conventional way is on a decline, not just uh, in BC, but right, right across the continent, we're seeing crops uh, uh, actually losing production. Because of the weather, because yeah. of variety you know, of reasons. You know, we, we thought a lot of the issues that we saw on grocery stores when we actually first time experienced shortage of food, it was supply chain or it was a war. But I can tell you today, the biggest challenge of growing food is, uh, is uh, climate change. So you sit with senior executives uh, that run major food companies, major operations when it comes to agriculture across North America, Europe, uh, Asia. Uh, what goes through their mind when you folks are talking amongst yourselves and you've got a population of 8 billion people on this planet? Like, what are the concerns that they that you're all collectively raising amongst yourselves? Yeah, Jess, uh, in 2021, there was a conference of, uh, of major food companies, uh, farmer cooperatives, uh, just under a trillion dollars of food revenue, beverage revenue that was at this conference. And the number one concern was uh, how we're seeing food production drop 
right across the continent. And the concern was that how do we deal with this problem, especially in the light of demand for food increasing and production of food is decreasing. So with that, uh, a lot of these major food companies decided that, hey, we need to collectively work together. Even competitors are saying, we need to work together how we're going to solve this problem. And technology was certainly top of mind. In fact, at this conference, the Secretary of Agriculture uh, was speaking as the guest speaker. And, uh, and it was so profound, uh, his comment was that today, food security in the United States is, is as important as national security. Hmm. Uh, so what, what would you change here locally? I mean, when you look at uh, uh, Vancouver, we often talk about our ALR land, everything else. What, would you, what are some of the things you think we need to fundamentally look at and do differently? Yeah. Um, well, I think, first of all, we've, uh, you know, like I said earlier, when, when we opened up was that food production in, in the provinces uh, this year, a lot of farmers are, were struggling. Um, but uh, what we th- I think we need to do is kind of look at a, an alternative food system, working with the current system that we have. But with climate change, and we're seeing, uh, you know, just a wide range of weather patterns coming in year after year, that if we're looking to feed not only the population today, but the population into the future, is actually looking at, uh, uh, you know, adding another system to the current food system that we have. And that's you know, I think uh, there's a lot of opportunity around in, so, indoor agriculture. So, so in, in, you're talking about indoor agriculture, right? Now, could you do that under the present system? I, I look at places like the Netherlands and, and the numbers. I was just going through them earlier today. Uh, you know, the Netherlands is not bigger than Maryland, uh, probably not much bigger than Vancouver Island. They produce 4 million cows, 13 million pigs, 104 million chickens. Uh, they export, they're one of Europe's biggest meat exporters. Uh, they provide vegetables to most of West. Western Europe, and the country has nearly 24,000 acres, almost twice the size of Manhattan, of crops growing uh, in greenhouses. So why does a region that small turn into a food superpower, and we can't do that here in Metro Vancouver or here in British Columbia? Well, well, I think we can, and, and I think we should. Um, you know, when uh, Premier Horgan uh, put together the Food Security Task Force, one of the things that uh, he had discovered on going to the Netherlands is that British Columbia had an opportunity to be the North uh, Netherlands of the North, and I think that was kind of how we we started uh, our work together with uh, with with the government. Uh, but certainly, we we should be thinking of this model and how we can um, get food to British Columbians uh, in an environmentally sustainable way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, the thing I like about indoors is pest-free, chemical-free, uh, and water is becoming a much, much bigger uh, issue today than ever before. And it uses, uh, you know, less than a 0.1% of the water that a conventional operation would use. And you would have more than one harvest, right? Like, it's one of the things I drive through Richmond sometimes. The city is 40% ALR land. And it sits empty most of the year. Yeah, you have a blueberry, let's say a blueberry harvest, and that's it. That one harvest, you could essentially, with indoor farming, you could have a lot more harvest beyond just one. And as you say, it's much more efficient in regards to just the use of resources. Yeah, and, and you're right. You have multiple, multiple harvests. In fact, you would need a lot less land and you can grow a lot more on. So I think the upside is is tremendous, and I think we need to start thinking about that. I do know uh, other countries are now, you know, jumping all over the opportunity uh, because food security is tied into their national sovereignty, mm-hmm. uh, and who knows what ha- what's going to happen in the, in the future. But uh, I, I, I actually know that uh, there are a number of nations, uh, even in, in, in uh, Canada, uh, uh, Quebec, uh, Ontario uh, are jumping all, even Calgary is now, uh, you know, looking at uh, how they're going to introduce technology into food production. 
we're speaking to Peter Dillon. He's uh, chairman of the board of directors of Ocean Spray Cranberries. Can I call you a farmer still? Do you like? Do you like Absolutely. That? That's, okay. that's what I call myself. <laughs> that's good. That's good. I mean, you get all these fancy titles. You always have to go back to where you started. Let's talk a little bit about just the issue of food security and what it actually means. Like when people talk food security, for me, uh, they think we're going to grow this crop. And, and we need to grow it locally. That's food security. But food security, one would argue, is really about growing that crop and getting it to the store shelf. And along the way, it's about cleaning the product. Uh, one would argue uh, packaging that product, uh, delivering that product. And, and when I mean packaging that product, should you be packaging some of that stuff on ALR land, building, I mean, factories may not be the right word, but packaging facilities, uh, other structures on ALR land. So my question to you is, do we need to rethink what ALR is or at least update the ALR because it was put together in the 72 to 75 NDP government? I think most people are supportive of it. But we also are held back, some would argue, in regards to are we getting the best use of that land? Yeah. So, Joss, uh, you know, you can ask uh, 10 people uh, what food security means to them, and you probably get 10 different answers. And I can mm. tell you what food security means to me. Um, I think m- most most think sometimes food security begins at the farm and ends at the farm. For me, food security means, you know, that's where it starts at the farm, but where it ends is at the grocery shelf where almost 100% of consumers buy their food. And if you don't get food onto that shelf, that's what creates problems. And um, everything in between the farm and the shelf has to work uh, together and, uh, and, and in harmony to make sure food is brought to the shelf. If systems are broken in between there or certain things are uh, you know, taken the wrong way, uh, it actually stops food or slows food getting to the shelf. And as we've seen also, some of those systems are causing costs to go through the roof. And we're seeing uh, consumers paying a lot more for food and we get this food inflation. And so if you really want to make sure you have uh, consistently food at the shelf at affordable prices, you got to fix, I think, in my opinion, anyways, the system from the farm to the shelf. So is that what I'm saying in between perhaps looking at packaging and um, like I said, factories may not be the right word, but putting some of these structures on ALR land. Yeah, you know, certainly when it comes to processing, I think when the ALR was created, the, the authors of the ALR actually had processing as a permitted use on 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 the ALR. So uh, it's it's actually crazy when we are actually growing food, driving it a couple of thousand miles away to get processed, and then driving it back a couple of thousand miles. You get food waste. You're you're, you're hurting the climate by taking food all the way there and really you're becoming less and less food secure because you're relying on some other entity to create the value add to bring food back to your shelf so you know we need to have a system that is more grow local process local feed local and that's what your task force report said question is do you think any government's got the guts to implement that and that's a challenge there i mean there's going to be feelings either way on this issue do you think we're eventually going to get there or do you think it's still many years of struggle still to actually get to that point yeah no i mean i I think that the fact that the government asked for the report was was a really positive sign when premier horgan said this is what i you know i I want you guys to go out and and look at this because he saw it as a big issue and i know that premier maybe is also top of mind he's 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 talked about food security, and uh, and it's become uh, a big issue for him, for him as well. Do I think we'll get there? Yeah, I, I'm I am optimistic that we get we'll get there. I think eventually we're going to have 
very little, if any, choice at all to make these decisions. Uh, final question to you. Uh, we talk about the next million here in the lower, lower mainland. Uh, our global population goes from 8 billion to 9 billion, and I think it's supposed to peak around 10 billion or so, uh, maybe a little bit more. Uh, we've been able to continue to grow and expand our food production for now. You're saying that now with weather, we're actually, the food production is, is, is going down. How do we feed the next billion then? Yeah, just uh, I think that's the call to action. That's what keeps me up at night when I think about, you know, where where we are and where we're going. And you know, to me, I, I think uh, over time we're heading towards a global food crisis, and uh, and we need to do something about it now. And that's the call to action. You know, you you know, we talked about California running out of water, and by 2030 they're they're predicting about a million acres of uh, production coming out, and that will have a direct impact on uh, feeding British Columbia. You know, uh, and, and so I always thought the, the crisis was about 10 years away. And just recently, within the last few months, India started shutting its border. And it was the largest exporter of rice. And they said, we're not exporting rice because we've been in a drought and we got to feed our people. So already the crisis has begun because Thai, uh, uh, Vietnam and Thailand are doing the same things. And what I'm afraid of, more and more jurisdictions are actually now more concerned about feeding themselves as opposed to exporting. And, you know, look in Saskatchewan. We have four years of drought there. Uh, look at the, uh, the uh, Alberta uh, on the shortage of feed for, for, for livestock. We're seeing, um, you know, di- diminishing food supply uh, because of climate change. And what concerns me is that we shouldn't wait to solve it in the moment. Just imagine if we had housing done properly. If somebody thought, look at these statistics, let's look forward. How are we going to fix housing? And uh, if we did that, we may have perhaps avoided the crisis that we're going through housing today. Mm -hmm. And we're solving it in the moment as opposed to looking out. And I'm just saying, we need to now look out 10 years because if we're going to solve in the moment a food crisis, it's going to be a lot uglier than the housing crisis. Yeah, you know what? Uh, it's funny when I, I covered a few riots around the world, and I remember one in New Delhi. There was a riot, and you know what it was over it was the significant cost of onions had gone up, and it impacts the local person's um, uh, wallet at the end of the day. Uh, when you look at rice, it's a huge staple food for not just India, for for Thailand, for China and Japan. When those kind of food stocks go up. You can see it actually on the street where people get very angry. There are protests and some, at times even riots as well. We, we don't think of it that way. And I think that's a really good importance. Never, <laughs> never mind the next million, the next billion as well. But we've taken food for granted in this region around the world and the production of food uh, for, for so long that it, it is one of those issues that are uh, front and center now as, as the world continues to grow and as the region continues to grow as well. Peter, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Jess. Let's revisit uh, our conversation from the 3 o'clock hour. I want to talk about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's U-turn. Now, today, Prime Minister Trudeau announced that his government will increase the carbon tax rebate paid to households in rural areas uh, across Canada. It will exempt home heating oil from the carbon tax for three years and roll out a more lucrative rebate program for people who switch their heat source to heat pumps. Here is Prime Minister Trudeau from earlier today. Today, we are announcing a three-year pause on the federal pollution price on heating oil so that we can give everyone the time and ability to switch to heat pumps. 
Now, I would argue that uh, I think he's feeling the heat in regards to Canadians and their challenges with affordability and the carbon tax going up every July up until 2030. In fact, the parliamentary uh, budget office says the the original uh, carbon tax was going up every July. So, uh, there was also a second carbon tax, uh, which is which included uh, federal fuel regulations that was also taking effect as of uh, of July 1st of this year as well. Combined, according to the parliamentary budget office, that would probably mean about uh, driving up costs for the average family by about $2,000. Now, the carbon tax brought in by Gordon Campbell in 2008, it was revenue neutral at that time, was to change behavior, uh, a market's response to getting people uh, away from fossil fuels. Well, today, a BC Conservative leader, John Rustad, uh, prior to this press conference uh, occurring, nobody knew that this announcement was coming, brought up the issue of the carbon tax. Take a listen. Half the people in this province are struggling to put food on the table and the consumption of fossil fuels per capita has gone up at the same rate as the rest of the country. So I'm not under- quite, I don't quite understand what this minister doesn't get about the failed carbon tax. For every voter that our party is taking from British Columbia, from the, <clears throat> from the defunct BC United Party, we are also taking one from the NDP party. British Columbians want change. To the Premier, why has this NDP government abandoned hard-working blue-collar voters and when will they slash this punishing carbon tax so that everyday workers can afford to live? British Columbia's economy has been transforming significantly as a result of a carbon tax, and it has put British Columbia in a good position to fight climate change, which over 70% of British Columbians believe is a pressing crisis. By 2030, 80% of British Columbians will get the climate action tax credit and a significant majority of them will get more back in the tax credit than they pay in carbon tax. So, uh, do we have a role to play when it comes to climate, uh, the, uh, the climate itself, and, and does carbon tax play a role in changing behavior? Or uh, are we just driving up costs for everyday British Columbians and Canadians when countries like China and India, United States, that alone is probably 50% of humanity just there with those three countries, do not have the carbon tax uh, like we have here. Joining me now is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Good afternoon, Keith. Hey, Jazz. Well, what's what's your uh, take on all this? I mean, uh, the debate was going on in question period this morning. All of a sudden, uh, Justin Trudeau has a press conference in the afternoon. What's this mean? Well, it's interesting. You and I were talking about discussing this before we had any inkling that Trudeau was uh, going to do what he did. But I did a column about three weeks ago questions are wondering whether or not we're going to see political leaders start to either lose their nerve or change their commitment when it comes to some of these climate change uh, fighting policies that uh, directly impact people's wallets. We saw in the UK, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister there in September, announcing a relaxation on all sorts of targets when it came to uh, reducing the number of fossil fuel cars on the roads, for example. Um, others sort of blinking uh, potentially at, at some... And, and Sunak's uh, reasoning was this was taking an inordinate uh, impact, negative impact on working people's wallets, that their ability to pay was being compromised by this increased um, uh, taxes or climate change policies that were costing money. Now you have the Trudeau government, which I think is directly tied to what's going on in Atlantic Canada, where the polling numbers suggest the support for the Trudeau uh, Liberals in Atlantic Canada, which used to be called the Red Wall, is crumbling. And a lot of that is directly attributed to the introduction of a carbon tax there. There was a by-election in, in Nova, provincial by-election in Nova Scotia this fall uh, or late summer, 
in which the liberals lost a seat that had been theirs for 20 years when the conservatives ran on basically one issue, get rid of the carbon tax. So the carbon tax is unpopular in Atlantic Canada. What is Trudeau announced but a three-year freeze, basically, or, or uh, delay before introducing the carbon tax on home heating oil in the Atlantic provinces? I think it's directly tied to some of the political heat, and one has to wonder whether or not we're going to see other governments start uh, changing their minds when it comes to pocketbook issues tied to climate change, which would be unfortunate, but people, a lot of detractors say it doesn't have the impact it's supposed to have in terms of curving uh, behavior. There's a poll this week by Research Co. that uh, found 28% of British Columbians don't think the carbon tax is changing behavior or their own behavior when it comes to consuming fossil fuels. You know, as you mentioned, 2008 is when Gordon Campbell brought this thing in. It is it used to be a $300 million budget item in the budget. It is now hitting $2.8 billion in revenue this current budget year. It's expected, according to the government's own budget, to increase to $3.4 billion in 25-26, just two years from now. Uh, that's a huge increase from even – it's basically doubling the revenue from 2019. In four years or five years, it's going to double the revenue to, to government as it goes up every year. It's no longer revenue neutral. hasn't been for years. And it's going to be very uh, very hard to untie this thing if you want mm-hmm. if politicians want to get rid of it. How do you get rid of $3 billion in revenue? You can't, which is, I think, it's interesting that Rustad brought that up today. Heyman's defending it. And we'll see where the BC United Party lands on this come the next election campaign. Will one or more parties call for a freeze on the carbon tax? I think that's put perfectly... Um, predictable that someone's going to call for a freeze on the carbon tax rather than see annual increases. We are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We're talking about uh, the federal government announcing today that uh, the government will increase the carbon tax rebate paid to households in rural areas, exempt uh, home heating oil from the carbon tax for three years, and roll out a, roll out a more lucrative rebate program for people who switch their heat sources to heat pumps. Uh, and as Keith was saying, there's obviously uh, an election coming, and I'm sure they're looking at the polls in Atlantic Canada, but the question is, should we be pausing Uh, our carbon tax uh, nationally here across the country because many other countries just don't have a carbon tax. It impacts our affordability. 604-280-9898. Let's go to uh, George in Nanaimo. Hi, George. Hi, Jazz. I know that you love to worship at the altar of climate change, but this (laughs) has got to be the dumbest policy ever brought in by any government. You can't possibly think we're stupid enough to believe that after... The three years is up, which, of course, is right after the next election. Mm-hmm. You're not just going to ramp it back up again. If this was such a good idea, every other country in the world would be doing it. But no, we're the only ones stupid enough to sabotage our own economy with jo- this tax. George, thank you for your call. Appreciate it. Uh, I've always, from day one, if it, if it doesn't, you know, if, if it impacts the family budget, I have tremendous concern over something like that. I think we have a role to play in uh, when it regards to addressing climate change, as do many British Columbians. Keith, uh, it, it is a bit of a 50-50 split in regards to support and dealing with the issue of climate change. At the same time, when you see the carbon tax, as you said, it's the behavior that really isn't changing. You're not seeing that transition to electric vehicles or whatever it may be. 
Well, uh, yeah, our greenhouse gas emissions are falling, but nowhere near as much as what was required by the target species set, and certainly not what was predicted with the introduction of a carbon tax. But there is some evidence there's some reduction uh, occurring, whether it's because of the carbon tax or something else. But uh, go back to that, the research poll, which is basically, you're right, a 50-50 split, 42% support it, 40% donor, vice versa. But tw- you know, almost a third of the electorate doesn't think it has any impact, uh, or just a thir- less than a third of the electorate think it has an impact on p- human behavior. Uh, but again, I note that countries and politicians are revisiting some of their policies that are tied to pocketbook issues when it comes to fighting climate change. And we've only just begun when it comes to some of these issues. I mean, there's an, uh, there was an ongoing protest in Europe. I'm not sure what the latest is. If you recall, it put a real reduction on fertilizer and a mm-hmm. huge cost with the reduction of fertilizer. And farmers were threatening to slaughter their cows on the steps of the Hague parliament in in holland with the, because it was just drive up cost so much it seems to be a bit of a relaxation on that front but this is part and parcel when it comes to some of the some of the tough policies that are required to fight climate change does mean a change in personal behavior but it does have some implications for the pocketbook and i think you're going to see politicians of all stripes not just left or right uh, get some cold feet when it yeah. comes to some of these policies. And I think you're seeing Justin Trudeau right now with cold feet when it comes to the carbon tax. Let's go to uh, John in Langley. Hi, John. Hey, gentlemen, uh, good to hear you on the air again. Uh, I uh, echoed the sentiments of uh, the first caller. But uh, to Keith, uh, this curbing behavior, this drives me around the bend. How can you curb behavior when there's absolutely no alternative uh, and it, it's destroying uh, our economy. Uh, I'll vote for anybody that's getting rid of the carbon tax. Uh, I just don't understand how such an inane policy can be supported. John, thank you for your call. I appreciate it. Well, well you know, I think the climate is being, is, is being created, given the cost of living and affordability mm-hmm. issues. We haven't seen a tax revolt for some time. I think you'd have to go back to the 90s, perhaps. You remember the Proposition 13 in California yeah. and these, all the rage was to reduce taxes. We had the B.C. Liberals when they came into power in 2001, huge income tax cut. Uh, we haven't had a tax revolt out there for some time, and I have to wonder whether one isn't brewing on an issue like the carbon tax. At the very least, perhaps a revolt to the point of freezing it, but not keep increasing it annually when the price of inflation is is what it, or the cost of inflation is what it is, and other affordability issues. We may have hit a point where politicians start changing their tune or their positions on some of these taxation issues. Yeah, I, I would I would completely agree with you on that one, Keith, on your assessment. Uh, let's go to Hardy in Abbotsford. Hi, Hardy. I want to touch on what the last caller said. No alternatives. I'm driving an electric vehicle. I know the upfront cost is more, and governments need to show more leadership. But this is a problem of leadership. It's not a problem of... There's lots of things that China and India do or don't do, and we do differently because we show leadership. And this has been a problem for the last 30 years. It's the oil industry especially in the States, and it's filtered up into Canada, and it's trying to be putting this off, putting this off, putting this off. And the problem just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. I'm in my mid-50s. We're all older guys here. We'll be dead and gone. Our grandchildren are going to look back at us and go, what the hell were these people thinking? But these small little things and not thinking about the big picture where hundreds of millions of people's lives are going to be drastically altered, and it's going to impact us as well. 
And we just sit around with these little things. I understand Hardy, the call. Hardy, we've run out of, Hardy, I appreciate Thanks. the call. we run out of time, my friend. Appreciate the call. Didn't mean to cut you off, Keith. Uh, uh, I'll let you wrap up. I'm a big skeptic of everyone thinks electric vehicles are going to solve everything. You cannot produce them fast enough. Um, the demand is slowing down. Already manufacturers are curbing their targets. We do not control the supply chain when it comes to electric vehicles. China does for the most part. And they leave a huge uh, fossil fuel imprint in the manufacturing process. So I don't think they're the magic answer to fossil fuel problems. Yeah. We will have more electric vehicles, but nowhere near the number that is going to replace fossil fuel well, cars this in, the, week, in the near future. This week in Wall Street Journal, uh, General Motors just said they're not going to be able to hit their 400,000 exactly. EV target because people just aren't buying them fast enough. Part of it is the people who buy who would afford the $70,000 EV can't afford that, nope. even if they've cut prices by 10000 or whatever. Prices will go down, technology will change, but it's not going to happen overnight. Exactly, and Exxon and Chevron, by the way, just invested $120 billion <laughs> yeah. the last two weeks uh, in fossil fuel companies, uh, which tells you they think the transition is going to take longer. You may not like it, but those are the facts, kids. Keith, thank you. All right, guys, take care. Well, when a commercial truck carrying a chicken struck a highway overpass uh, in Langley Tuesday, uh, it was, get this, the 28th overpass hit in BC since the start of 2022. 15 of those crashes happened this year. Uh, the data also shows that BC only went 11 days between the two most recent overpass strikes. Why are they happening and how do we fix this? So joining me now to talk a little bit about the challenges before the trucking industry and government is Dave Earl, President and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. Dave, thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here, Jess. I know you grow tired of doing these interviews on this particular issue, and I know you're very frustrated by, by what's been occurring as well, and I know that the industry is frustrated. Um, first and foremost, in your mind, why are they happening, especially in the last couple of years? I didn't, we didn't hear about these things you know, 10 years ago, in my opinion. Maybe, maybe I just haven't been around the news then. I don't know. But you didn't hear about this stuff. What, what is going on in your mind? Yeah, there's a few things, Jazz. And I mean, one of the things to keep in mind is not every incident is the same. So when you look at the one that happened yesterday with, with the trucks, and I'm not privy to the investigation at all, but you know, taking a look at what's there, that was a pretty standard configuration for the truck. And I would venture to guess that it went under that overpass probably a dozen times a week for many, many years. But something happened yesterday. Mm. And when you look at the type of truck, the roof actually moves. It allows the crates to be loaded and unloaded. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I mean, clearly, this is very different than somebody putting an excavator on the back of a trailer and going down the road. Um, something different happened this time. So it, it's not as uh, it's not as clear cut as we've seen in other instances. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, there's been talk uh, recently in the news that we need stiffer penalties. Uh, do you do you buy that? Oh, absolutely. And one of the things we're really happy to see, and we've been working with the ministry on this recently, is is looking at what that is. Uh, and what we've seen happen with the last two incidents in particular is the minister has used his authority to step in and suspend the operating certificate until they can figure out what happened. You know, and it isn't so much the, the real specifics, but it's a, are we dealing with a, a pattern of bad behavior or lazy fair attitude or are we dealing with something that's a little bit different? Uh, and what I mean by that is when you look at the incident that happened in North Vancouver, that's a big load on the back of a trailer that there was no way it was going to work. Um, the one that happened yesterday, it's a little, little different. You know, what something happened um, that was unusual. 
when we think back of the incident that happened on Highway 99 uh, with the with the vehicle that struck the overpass, mm-hmm. um, you have to keep in mind it came through the tunnel. Yeah. So something happened between the tunnel and the overpass. It wasn't that the driver said, well, I don't care, I'm just going to do my thing. Something happened. And that's why these are a little more tricky sometimes to, to tease out, but we're very happy the ministry is really taking these things seriously. Is this about more training? I, I know there's training of these truck drivers. Does it speak to the quality of training that they're receiving? Sure does, Jazz. I mean, up until two years ago, uh, the actual content of what a truck driver was trained to do was really variable. You had some really, really good, reputable schools doing a great job and some not. Uh, And what we saw two years ago was the adoption of a federal standard that standardizes training right across the country. So as time goes by, more and more drivers will get that training uh, and should be in a better position. But we've got to do something about everybody else. Uh, What do you mean by these other folks? What do you mean by that? So we've got literally decades of drivers that have been licensed and trained to variable standards. Okay. So the question becomes for us is to say, well, what do I do with somebody who perhaps, uh, you know, got their license, uh, their class one license in 1998 and has been driving a particular configuration of truck, then they get a new job and they're on a new one. And how do we make sure that they're given the skills and assessed on those skills to do the work that needs to be done to operate safely. We have a lot of immigrants coming to Canada. We have a shortage of labor. Are they getting the proper training in your mind, uh, students that are coming here as well from some of these private schools? I mean, uh, how much of, of that uh, is causing some of this in your mind? I know it's anecdotal. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm making some assumptions and presumptions here probably, but I think it's the right question to ask is, is that part of the challenge as well? Well, it's the same conversation, you know, and making sure in the past two years, Uh, Certainly everybody that comes, they're assessed, and it depends on what jurisdiction they come from and what training they have in that jurisdiction. And before they're issued a license in a jurisdiction in Canada, that training they've done goes through an assessment to make sure that they're actually on par. And if they're not, they have to do the training here. Mm. That wasn't done until two years ago. So we're still in that catch-up mode. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to change the subject ever so slightly, only because what's in mm-hmm. the news. And, and today the the uh, Prime Minister announced that uh, they're going to provide some help for rural residents in regards to home heating. And they're going to pause the carbon tax uh, for three years. Uh, and your industry, uh, just in regards to fuel itself, uh, is a significant impact. Um, can you just speak a little bit about the carbon tax and, and its impact on trucking? Oh, yeah, it is, a, it is definitely a cost that our members absorb uh, in their operations, which means that you and me and every single Canadian pays more for the goods that may, make it to their homes every day. Hmm. Um, it's an extra cost. There, there is absolutely no doubt it's a very transparent cost flow through industry. Um, you know, our members uh, regularly negotiate fuel surcharges as part of uh, the backstops and contracts. So when you, your listener you know, thinks about the carbon tax and what they pay at the fuel pump, they need to remember everything they buy has a component of that carbon tax embedded in the price. Mm. Are there any states in the U.S. that are charging a carbon tax or something similar to a carbon tax that you know of? I don't know, Jazz. I couldn't answer that one for you. Okay, I'm just curious because uh, I know everybody talks about climate change, but very few actually bring in the carbon tax and have it increased significantly year after year. And we're just on the early stages of a significant increase up until 2030, so I was very, very curious. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. 
Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.